Welcome to Fertility Now. Today, I'm honored to have Dr. Nathan Treff, PhD, HCLD with us. He is an amazing guy. He is a scientific director, or basically chief scientific officer, lab director of genomic prediction, a really interesting genetics firm, and he'll explain to you more about that. Nathan is an associate professor, multiple prize papers and awards in our field with over 100 peer-reviewed articles in reproductive genetics, which is kind of the coolest area that's going on in our field. And I want to say one last sentence, then I'll say hi to Nathan. And that is, you know, Nathan probably realizes that all of us reproductive endocrine physicians, all of us clinicians have been following his work for years and really are amazed with all the things he's doing and the molecular genetics level. So Nathan, how are you doing? Good. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. You know, your what you're doing in our field is is so interesting, especially when we get into talking about genetic testing of embryos. We've come so far. So I wanted to have you talk to all of us about some of the things you're seeing, some of the interesting options that you're doing on your genomic prediction platform that you can teach us about. But I I felt that I want to ask you an opening question and say to you, you know, what's the most rewarding professional experience for you over the last 10 years? What really kind of keeps you going? Yeah, you know, I've I've been at it for almost 20 years now. And uh, when I started, um, actually, I wasn't really that excited. Um, I wanted to spend my life working on curing disease. And when I had an opportunity to get into infertility, I was, I was kind of thinking, well, you know, you're not going to die if you don't have a kid. Um, you know, and since then I've had my own children and actually being involved in helping create life, it's sort of the other end of the spectrum. And I never thought as a PhD student that the work I I would be doing would actually help, uh, help people have families, build families and, and be translated into clinical care. And so that it's just, I think generally been pretty, a pretty exciting thing to be involved in. And Every once in a while, we do a little bit of extra work for a couple and, and you know, they've struggled for some time and to be able to help them overcome that and, and have success. I think there's been a handful of those where I've spent more time than I normally do. And, and it's really rewarding to, to get feedback from those patients, you know, about how grateful they are. And, uh, and again, just to, to be involved in that process is, is pretty exciting. And the other, the other aspect is, is from a scientific perspective, I think the human embryo is probably one of the most fascinating things in all of biology. It's um, sort of still blows me away that all of the information is in a sperm and an egg to create a human being. And when we get to study that process, it's, it's probably as complicated as the human brain. And there's, there's still a lot of exciting things to discover. And, um, you know, we're making a lot of progress. You know, I feel kind of like I do, like you do, you know, being part of our field for 20 years, we've watched so much happen. And like you said, helped so many people. And that's what keeps both of, keeps my energy going. And I wake up some mornings, I look in the mirror, I say, I cannot believe how lucky and interesting I am to be a reproductive physician. And that's basically what you said about yourself. It's just so interesting. What a, what a good life to have led, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. 
So, you know, I was, I wanted to open up and say, you know, the mission statement of genomic prediction is, you know, we want every IVF family to have a healthy baby. And my audience is very up to date on IVF. We've talked about all kinds of cool things. And patients are doing IVF and genetic testing of embryos, you know, all the time. So they're ready to hear, you know, some advanced twists on all this. And there's no doubt that over the last 40 years, you know, things have just taken off, you know, monumental changes, you know. Um, and so here's how I'm going to do this. I'm going to throw a couple sentences and then we're going to jump in with Nathan. So, you know, I was listening to some of your discussions and, you know, the concept of rolling the dice, you know, and that's the uh, concept where some of our patients who are doing IVF will put in an embryo and they'll be obviously successful. But a lot of times the embryo they put in is not correct. It's not genetically 46 chromosomes and they can have a loss. And so when we get to the IVF world for many different reasons, we don't want to roll the dice. We want information. And this is how I want to open this up. I want to tell my audience that, you know, we're basically trying to improve the, our patients' odds by looking at molecular genetics, and you'll hear Nathan talk about it. And, you know, we're going to talk about genetic profiles and polygenic screening, monogenic screening, aneuploidy, PGTA, you know, basically improving the health of babies and families. And, um, you know, let's just tackle this and jump right in. So you at Genomic Predictions have the life view, and it's a platform for testing embryos. Tell us anything at, a, at an easy level about biopsying the embryo and kind of snip array in a real easy, easy way. Yeah. You know, um, one analogy is, is a television. I think a lot of the genetic testing you can get out there, and, and it's a lot of it's just this, the same thing. And it's pretty low resolution, so it's it's like having a standard definition television. And and uh, with LifeView, we actually have more information than any test available today. And so it's kind of like having an 8K or 4K television in, in terms of the amount of information and resolution of, of information that we get uh, from the embryo. <clears throat> and it really allows us to to do a lot of things in parallel. And and as you said, it, it's I think important for a lot of reasons to to have the, these tools to improve the odds of, of success and health. And, and so that's the general uh, framework for, for LifeView is, is we developed this, this new test. Um, it's really powerful. Um, it's more accurate than anything you can get. Uh, and it gives you more options, uh, which we can talk about, you know, um, instead of just choosing an embryo based on how it looks under a microscope, you can test the genetics and, and predict risk of, of a lot of common diseases like diabetes, cancer, and heart disease for the first time. Uh, and, and also, you know, the main reason for it is is testing the chromosome, count it, counting the chromosomes. And uh, when there's the wrong number of chromosomes, it's, you know, the leading cause of miscarriage and probably one of the primary reasons for failure in, in the IVF setting. So again, it really helps to look at that and then once you have chromosomally normal embryos, you have an opportunity to, to look even deeper and, and um, prioritize or select an embryo that has the lowest risk for uh, these common diseases, like I mentioned. Right. So that's, that's you said that beautifully, obviously. Um, what I want to do is let's kind of jump right into what you said and, and kind of dissect it for everyone. 
So a lot of our patients listening, they know about PGT4 aneuploidy. And like you kind of commented, you know, instead of just putting it in an embryo because it looks pretty, has a right shape and, and, and feeling to it and right development, well, let's get to a level and find out if it's 46 chromosomes. We all know that. So we want embryos that are 46 chromosomes. And obviously, LifeView has PGT-A, right? So that's the basics where you're biopsying a piece of the embryo and make sure it's 46 chromosomes. And like you even said, the highest cause of miscarriage. You find, obviously, in patients who are doing LifeView, they're going to be able to pick different things they want. But obviously, everyone wants PGT-A, is that embryo you're putting in 46 chromosomes or not? Agreed? Agreed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, the main main reason for PGT is is A, and uh, it's becoming more commonly used. Um, I think it's close to 45% of all IVF cycles now in the U.S., uh, and, and that just continues to grow as people become more aware of, of their options and uh, uh, so, you know, it's, um, I think it's come a long way since, since the early days of testing chromosomes, we have better methods, better technologies. Um, it, it's become more cost effective. And, uh, and of course, there's a lot of clinical trials out there that have evaluated the utility. So it's, um, it, it's obviously a big area of research, uh, and it continues to be uh, as we move forward. Right. So it's interesting. I would say in our patients who are 30 and above, obviously the the percentage of our patients at that age group who are doing PGTA as part of what they're doing is probably over 90%. So it's just, this is becoming kind of standardish. And just for our patients, you know, a lot of our patients, they want to test embryos. They want to find out of the embryos they have, which ones are 46, so they can do a single embryo transfer, make it simple. Some of our patients are a little bit older. Hey, listen, show me the embryo that's good, not the ones that aren't good. Our patients are having multiple pregnancy loss. Try to show me the 46 embryo of all the embryos you biopsied and put it in and help me out. Could also gender select, male or female. And listen, some of our patients, Nathan, are like, listen, I want to just make sure I'm putting an embryo that's 46 chromosomes. I want to avoid a pregnancy that's not going to be correct. Mm -hmm. And so what do you tell us a little bit about PGTA plus? Because that's a new cool twist. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, our, our controversial topic is, is mosaicism um, and uh, the accuracy of predicting it is, is challenging. Um, it's where you have, you know, a mixture of normal and abnormal cells in the same uh, embryo. And so depending on which part of the embryo you test, you might get a different answer. Um, so one of the things we've developed with PGTA plus uh, is unique in that we um, we can use the information actually to determine when during development did the aneuploidy originate. So did it come from the egg? Did it come from the sperm? Or uh, did it actually come uh, after fertilization? Did it arise from embryonic development? And that's what leads to a mosaic. When the abnormality occurs after fertilization, you you, you get an embryo that has a mixture of normal and abnormal cells. And so we can predict with PGTA plus the cell division origin, not just the parental origin, which could be important if it comes from the mom or the dad. And I think it's particularly useful in cases where a patient might do PGTA and, and find out the unfortunate news that all of the embryos that they've produced 
are abnormal. Uh, and, and so by looking at the origin of antipodia, it can help provide more information and maybe help uh, in terms of deciding what to do next. Psycho again, um, maybe consider uh, um, donation, uh, gamete donation. Um, but, but also, you know, in our field, a lot of people are considering the transfer of mosaic embryos. So if we find one of the embryos in the cohort has a has an embryonic origin antipody, they, there is an opportunity to consider that for transfer. And, and so far, our, our studies have shown that it's significantly more accurate at predicting mosaicism than some of the uh, sort of low resolution methods that, that use simple thresholds for copy number. And what we're doing is looking at the genotypes and inheritance patterns at 800,000 positions in the genome. And it really gives us a much more accurate prediction of, of what's happening in terms of the origin of antipody. So I think in, in certain cases, it can be useful. Uh, and, and patients like to know why, why something happened, why they have all antipody and, and help, uh, you know, in their, their journey to success, I think it can be uh, important. Right. So let's say, tell me if I'm on base with you. All embryos are aneuploid. A couple cycles have been done. PGTA plus says, you know, it's from egg maternal. That couple can say, you know, I'm ha I have eggs that are not behaving in this journey of having a 46 euploid embryo. And I've done this a couple of times. You know what? Maybe I will use, like you said, donor eggs into the situation, change that gamete out and have success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, yeah. Oh. And there's been, and that's most probably the most common outcome, but there are some situations and relatively unique where the antipody might come from the sperm. Uh, and normally you would just assume if you hadn't done this test that it, it's the egg and you would proceed with an egg donor cycle. But in some rare cases, it can be from the sperm. And, and then in other cases, you might have uh, a few embryos that developed antipody after fertilization. So it's not really from the egg or the sperm. It, it's it's a mosaic, a mitotic or embryonic error. And, and um, because there's a mixture of euploid and antipoid cells, there's some data to suggest they may they may be successful. And, and so that's one, you know, uh, sort of last effort that you could you could take. Right, so we can get to the, the the level of what's going on in at the cellular level, and at the end of the day, we help our couples make decisions on what to do. Like you said, with the mosaic embryos or with their egg and sperm. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really really cool stuff. Um, so we have that PGA plus, and then PGTM for monogenic disorders. Our patients obviously are doing it a lot. And just to open up this discussion, you know, a lot of our patients are getting carrier panels done to make sure and see if they are carriers of any conditions. And, you know, the most common situation is that we have a couple who wants to get pregnant. Um, we work with them, get things rolling, find out that they're both carriers of the same condition. They didn't know they were carriers because they're a silent carrier of a medical condition. But by chance, her and her partner inherited from their family tree. And now they're both carriers of the same medical condition, which by the way, is really rare. But the problem is if that couple gets together and has children 25% of the time, based upon how egg and sperm come together and genetics, 25% of the time, the offspring will have a gene from each of them and have that real deal disease, which is a problem. And the other 75 basically at the end of the day won't. Mm -hmm. 
And so we have couples who are, who have, who are carriers of the same thing. Or, you know what, Nathan, I had a couple just yesterday. They had, they got pregnant and their child had a pregnancy. Excuse me. Their child had, was born with a medical condition and is very, very sick, but doing okay, obviously. And what they found out was, is that they're both carriers of the same condition. They're both autosomal recessive carriers. Now moving forward, they're going to test their embryos for that condition and try to find embryos in their IVF cohort that aren't affected with that condition. It's yeah. pretty wild. Yeah, it is. And um, in a lot of cases, you know, these are diseases that can't be cured. So the re really the only way to prevent it is through IVF and PGT, um, which is pretty exciting that there is this option. Um, and, and I think, you know, the very first PGT was, was for a monogenic uh, condition. And uh, so there's been a lot of success, uh, you know, and, it should be stated, you know, all of these tests, not, none of them are perfect, but it, it, it's a significant risk reduction in, in, all, in all of these tests that you get. Uh, and so, yeah, it's pretty, uh, I think, uh, amazing that, that uh, these couples, you know, however they find out, there is this medical intervention that can prevent disease in their children. And, um, and you know, it's, I'm sure, you know, I haven't gone through it personally, but I, I think, um, I, it's probably a very difficult process to, to go through and uh, and to have the support that, that a patient needs to get through it and and uh, understand it. You know, genetic counselors are, are really important for, for managing um, patients' uh, expectations and, and understanding so that they're comfortable with, with how things are going and understand what's going on. And so there's just, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, and, and I think you know, one of the things with the LifeU platform that we've been able to do is, in in some cases, patients don't have family members. You know, they don't have a child, or they don't they don't have uh, parents that they can use, and and that's a, an important part typically of doing these PGTM cases is is having family members to sort of set up the the case so you can track uh, which parts of the genome are inherited along with these mutations and. Um, and so we've been able to develop a way to directly measure the mutation. And, and so it doesn't always require family members. And there are also cases we call de novo um, mutations that weren't actually in either of the parents to begin with, but they are acquired um, in the embryo. And, and so there is a recurrent risk. And that's something that has historically been difficult to evaluate. But we've, again, we've been able to accommodate those cases as well. So uh, it's been around a long time and uh, there's been a lot of work that has gone into making it more and more accurate. And now um, to be able to accommodate more couples that, that have these risks, I think is important as well. Absolutely. So for example, you know, we, we see as for our audience, the most common kind of basic autosomal recessive condition would be, you know, cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy, you know, and a man like me, my chance of being a carrier for CF is one in, let's say, 2930, somewhere around that. So if I was a carrier, I don't have anything, but I have to check my wife and see if she was a carrier. If she was not a carrier, we're okay. But if we're both carriers, then we could, 25% of our children would have CF, which is a which is a real disease process. And that's when you could do PGT-M. You know, it's also cool, Nathan, our patients have breast cancer, and they have a family history or, and they have a history of the BRCA gene. So, you know, they, 
have a family history of breast cancer and they or they have breast cancer and they have the gene, 50% of their offspring will also have the breast cancer gene. Doesn't mean they're going to get breast cancer, but they can also do PGTM to find out which other embryos will have the breast cancer gene and which ones won't. Yeah. So it's just incredible. Yeah. And it's actually a good transition because um, I think most people are familiar with the BRCA gene and and um, the risk of, of developing breast cancer that's associated with mutations. Um, but it actually represents a pretty small proportion of all breast cancer, about 5%. Yeah. And it's the other, other um, you know, 95% that uh, looking at not the monogenic forms, but the polygenic forms actually allows you to, to start um, addressing uh, so this polygenic origin of, of breast cancer is significantly more common than monogenic. Um, and so it's it's now possible to to start to look at that. So if if you do have a family history, but you're negative for these single gene, you know, monogenic mutations, then then looking at polygenic risk is is now a, an option. So PGTP polygenic disorders is one of the big reasons why I wanted Nathan so badly to be on with us. Very cool stuff. So it's different, like he said, than looking at monogenic diseases where in those conditions, we know, and Nathan can correct me, we know what we're looking for that's causing a problem or disease process in our patients and or their offspring. But polygenic is a little bit different because there's more to it. If I said to you in an easy way, how would you explain polygenic screening? What would you say to us? Yeah, so... You know, most most people are are surprised that this is even possible, um, and it's it's something that a lot of scientists have been looking at for years, and and we really just didn't have the tools to be able to um, predict risk of polygenic disease. And you know, there's these arguments. Well, a lot of it's caused by the environment, and and that's certainly true. So you you really can only explain a a certain percentage of what you see from the genetics. Some of it is environment, but it's significant enough. Um, when you start to look at large populations, and we're talking about 500,000 people and, and having all of their genomic data and all of their phenotypes, all the diseases that they may have developed through throughout their life, uh, we can start using, you know, these things we call machine learning or AI and, and it allows you to find positions in the genome. You're looking at the whole genome. And so it may be for breast cancer, it may be 5,000 different positions in the genome that contribute to the risk of breast cancer. And when you start to look at those, um, you can identify uh, places in the genome that can distinguish between uh, individuals that developed breast cancer and individuals that did not develop breast cancer. And and so by doing that, you can start to assess the risk of, of an individual. And just using the DNA alone, um, we have this option. So it's, it's really scanning the whole genome, but we, we, use, uh, we train the, the algorithm uh, based on knowing if patients have the disease or not to identify places that can tell the difference between those two groups. And then you can test those positions in an individual and predict whether or not they're going to have breast cancer or not. Um, yeah. So it's like many genes interacting to cause, mm -hmm. you know, a situation or a, a disease process. 
Yeah. That's really dumbed down. That may be not correct, but yeah. there's a, it's not, it's, there's, inter, there's many genes in a lot interacting. And so basically you're, for example, looking at, so you have an embryo. So I'll give everyone an, an example and, and, and Nathan can correct me. Someone's doing IVF, 39 years old. They're testing the embryo to make sure one, is it 46 chromosomes? We talked about that. But they also may say, you know what? I want to do polygenic screening because I want to see if that little piece of tissue they took to tell me that the embryo is 46 chromosomes, it can also be used to tell me about other conditions like hypertension, diabetes, prostate cancer, pr heart disease, all these kind of other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, that's, the, that's unique. Yeah. And the, the cool part about it is even if you only have two chromosomally normal embryos, uh, choosing one with genetics is significantly better in terms of the risk of disease and the risk reduction that you get compared to randomly choosing one. Uh, so you don't need to have a large number to choose from in order for there to be a significant benefit. And, uh, you know, type 1 diabetes is something close to me. I, I care a lot about it. Uh, I developed it as, as a graduate student uh, and, and I did embryonic stem cell research. And, um, and so being able to uh, bring this into the IVF setting is, is something personal to me. Um, and that's one of our best predictors. Uh, so it's about a 50% risk reduction with genetic selection versus random selection. Again, when you only have two to choose from. So, you know, if you have a couple and one of the, one of the intended parents is, is diabetic, this is a great option for them to have, right. Um, to, to be able to significantly reduce risk in their children. It's too late for me, but for my kids, when they go to have kids, I think, you know, I'm excited that they have this opportunity to, to utilize new technology to reduce risk in, in, in their families. I have a comment and a question. So that's where in, in, in PGT-P you have the embryo health score. And so like you commented, you have two embryos, three embryos, you're gonna rank order the embryos with regard to risk based upon algorithms and genome of which embryo is potentially has the lower risk of that genetic disease developing mm -hmm. in that child's lifetime. Agreed? Yeah. Yeah. So this embryo health score is a composite score of all of the diseases that we can evaluate into one score. So now you have, instead of just morphology, you have embryo health scores to use in making a decision about which embryo to transfer. And the cool thing about it is we've seen, uh, there's this, this concept called pleiotropy where there's concern that if you select against one disease, you're going to increase the risk of another disease. And there's some examples of this, um, but in this setting, it actually turns out that selecting against one disease tends to reduce the risk of other diseases in parallel. So, and it kind of makes sense, you know, uh, if you have diabetes, you have a higher risk of heart disease. Um, and, and so they kind of, there's sort, sort of some connection there that when you select an embryo with, with low risk of one disease, it actually also reduces the risk of others in parallel. So there's this positive pleiotropy, which right. um, no, people didn't really expect. Um, and when we started looking at the data, you see these, these uh, positive uh, correlations. So it's, it's a good thing. I mean, this, this is very powerful because we're really helping people who have these risks in their families have 
potentially healthier babies and they have those babies having really good lives. Yeah. And, you know, you think about it, it may not just be limited in, in terms of utility to families that already know that they have a, a history of diabetes, cancer, or heart disease. It, it's probably hard to find a family that doesn't have one of those to begin with, but it's also pretty well established that patients with infertility already have a higher risk of diabetes, right. cancer, and heart disease. So it's really the IVF population, the the infertile population that stands to benefit in general um, by using a more well-informed embryo selection process. Just for our audience to hear, and then I want to make another comment, besides uh, diabetes, what other... Um, what you know? What are you seeing in your practice? People wanting to do this for? Give me just throw anything at us. Hypertension. Um, yeah, you know, in normal. So we have a clinical trial. It's called the Embryo Health Study, and and we've been following patients why they want to use it, um, how they feel about it, um, how close they are emotionally to a family member that has one of the diseases that we can test for, and. Um, and, and that's generally the driving factor. If, if they um, have somebody that was close to them that had, had the disease, um, that's what they're kind of focused on. But most of the patients have elected to test for everything that we have available. They haven't necessarily chosen a specific disease. Okay. Um, but yeah, we you know, like I said, we have type 1 and type 2 diabetes, coronary artery disease, heart attack. Uh, breast cancer, testicular cancer, prostate cancer, uh, and schizophrenia. And, you know, these these um, available tests are only going to expand as we obtain more information and more data, um, which ha is happening, you know, as we speak. Right. Just to put my two cents in, it's, it's obvious to me, having been a clinician in, in this amazing field, that this at some point is going to be standard. That's my bias, where when our patients are doing IVF, sure, it's 46 chromosomes, we got that, but then they're going to be looking a little bit deeper into polygenic disorders. And um, this is just, for me, it's a game changer, and I think it's so exciting, and and like, like you said, more to come every minute of the day. Yeah, you know, and it's my long-term goal, and I, I think PGT should be free to everyone. I, I don't think that patients should have to pay for this, but we have a lot of work uh, to do, I think, to demonstrate things that, you know, insurance companies can get behind. Um, there are some countries that, that pay for PGT and, and there, we have some new programs that, that help uh, cover expenses, but that, and that's one of the limiting factors typically is being able to afford uh, doing these tests. And, and so the more we can do to demonstrate clinical utility and, and you know, improving human health, uh, the closer we'll get to, to making this something that, you know, that's not a consideration. How much does it cost? Right. I'll say something on that before we move on. I agree, obviously, with you. And in the day when our patients can do this, PGT, and freeze their eggs, while they're younger, in case they're not partnered, is so important for our patients. And I'm not going to talk for Nathan, but for me, that's the most important is healthy baby, happy family. And um, oh, we're working on it. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to switch gears on everyone while we 
slowly start wrapping up. A lot of our patients are going to need PGTSR, kind of structural rearrangements. And I want to make this kind of more simple. Another, this is another part of life view. It can be done individually. Um, and the example that our patients who are listening to, listening to us, may be the patient who had multiple pregnancy losses. And to make a long story short, they had them, they and their partners' chromosomes checked, and they found out that they did not have, in quotes, 46 chromosomes. Well, they did have 46 chromosomes, but there was a little bit of a flip-flop between chromosomes. Let's say a piece of chromosome 5 went over to 10, a piece of 10 went over to 5, but that beautiful person in front of us has all their genetic information, and they are perfectly set. The problem is someone who has that, and again, Nathan will correct me if I'm wrong, someone who has that balanced translocation, they can make egg or sperm depending upon who it's in and have a child that's balanced just like them and they're fine, but they can also make egg or sperm that's unbalanced. And when there's an unbalanced egg or sperm that is utilized in a pregnancy, that's going to be a, a pregnancy loss because it's not, it doesn't have all the the genetic material, it's missing something. It's not perfectly balanced. In that situation, when we have patients who have balanced translocations, they're also doing PGT to find out which embryos are balanced and usable and which ones that are not balanced and non-usable. Mm -hmm. Am I okay with that, Nathan? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, even though they're rearranged, the, the what's what we call copy number neutral. So it's the right number of copies, but they're rearranged. So then when you go to have a baby, and a lot of times this is how they find out, it, you know, they have problems getting pregnant or they have a miscarriage and then there's a karyotype performed and they find out they carry this. And that's really the only phenotype um, is there, there's um, increased risk of miscarriage and infertility. And so it's more commonly found in patients going through IVF. Um, and that's you know, potentially why they're there. Um, and, and yeah, one of the exciting things about LifeU is when I, I mentioned this, this, that they're, it's copy number neutral. So, so it's hard to tell in a situation where the embryo has the right number of chromosomes, but still carries the translocation versus an embryo that does not carry the translocation. And ideally, you'd have the ability to tell the difference because you'd like to transfer an embryo that does not carry the same balanced translocation as you do, and therefore they wouldn't have the same problems with with um, having a child in, in their future. So that's one of the advantages of, of life view. We can distinguish between whether or not the embryo is a carrier of the balanced translocation or is truly chromosomally normal. Uh, and again, it's one of those things where life view gives patients more options. Um, and I think it, it provides a better service that they have this opportunity to avoid uh, inheritance of a balanced translocation in, in their child. So that is, that's really, really obviously amazing because then if we choose an embryo that's not balanced, that child is not going to have to worry about having issues like their parent did. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's special. Um, and anything to, anything to make our patients and their future family lives simpler, it, that's, it, it's so important. So I love that. And then the last thing I want to pick on, because this is unique again to you is, you know, and I, I can't wait to hear you talk about it, is, you know, a lot of our patients are having miscarriage, 
And, uh, you know, a lot of times it's because those embryos aren't 46 chromosomes. But I tell patients, and again, Nathan can, can, will jump in. I tell patients, well, you know what? You could also have miscarriage basically even if the, even if the embryo is 46 chromosomes. So usually, obviously, if it's not 46 chromosomes, 23 pairs, it's not going to be a full-term pregnancy or we're going to have an issue. But how about our patients who are putting in nice embryos and they're having miscarriage? Do you feel like that's where M2 comes in? Yeah. Or can? It can. Yeah, it can help, uh, I think, uh, g give patients another option to consider. And so this M2 test, it's, it's looking at a gene called the Nexin A5. And there's a certain sequence that if you have, uh, can increase, significantly increase the risk of pregnancy complications, including miscarriage. So we have a simple saliva test um, that tells uh, both members, you know, both intended parents, the um, whether or not they're carriers, because um, the risk can come from the mom or the dad. Uh, so we want to measure, we want to look at both. And uh, and then if they come back as a carrier, there's an option of daily heparin, which has been shown to mitigate the risks associated with having this M2 mutation. The other option is you can actually test the embryos for whether or not they carry the M2 mutation and then select an embryo that does not. Uh, so that so that PGT, uh, it's PGTM, but for the M2 uh, gene, that's another option. So yeah, it, I think it can be helpful in situations where you've transferred, you put embryos and it had failures. Um, maybe there's a history of, of miscarriage. Um, and so getting more information and, and potentially uh, having an intervention, which is heparin or PGT might, might help in those situations. And so is it so that, are you doing an ongoing study that you're recruiting people or am I wrong? Yeah, we do. Um, we do have a clinical trial uh, in um, in this setting where we're looking at uh, M2 carrier frequency and, uh, and history of pregnancy complications to further confirm the associations that other people have found, but specifically in the IVF setting. Um, and we're also looking at outcomes of incorporating PGT, which until now hasn't been an option for this particular uh, mutation. Um, and, and so, yeah, we're excited about that, that study. It, it is an available test. Um, again, just may be helpful to have more information to explain what's going on and, and, um, and maybe make a decision about how to intervene to, to reduce the risks that are, are known to be associated with, with this mutation. Right, you know, potentially hypertension and clotting issues and stuff like that, where you could use heparin and kind of use a good medical intervention. Um, you know, as we wrap up, you made an interesting comment that we have our physicians, we have you, the geneticists, the PhD doctors, we have the genetic counselors who are incredible, who do a lot of help and really talk to our patients. And sometimes my patients will say, you know, when my embryo gets to the genetics lab, and I don't want you to spend a lot of time on this because I know you could talk forever, but maybe five, 10, 15 seconds, when that embryo, when those pieces of trophectidum or the pieces of each embryo gets to your lab, just so our patients know, there's many safeguards, incredible accuracy, and a 
beautiful reporting structure and accuracy for our patients to get information from those biopsies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we and and a lot of labs they they go through approval processes uh, to to make sure the quality of what's being done is, is up to standard. So we have CLIA and CAP and New York State and and several states have. Uh, regulatory approval processes, so you get accredited, um, and those are important to make sure that everything we do uh, is the best possible. But when we get the so when we get the samples, you know, as soon as we we have them, uh, we're accessioning them. We're making sure that the labels are consistent with the form that comes with it, the, the sample submission form, and um, and all of the information about the patient is all matched up. Uh, so, so we're doing this confirmation and, and we actually record this process. Uh, and so we can have independent uh, verification of, of each step in the process. Um, and then from that point, you know, we have, obviously you have very few cells, uh, from the embryo. So we have to amplify the DNA to get enough DNA to, to actually, uh, evaluate and, and quantify and, and do all the things that we can do. So this amplification step um, happens. Um, so we get multiple copies of what was originally in in the uh, tube, uh, and that allows us to then further process it on on um, what we call a, a microarray. And this is like a, a glass slide which has all of these probes, eight hundred thousand probes, that then the embryonic DNA can stick to. Uh, and, and based on how much was at each position, we can measure the quantity. We, we sort of scan it, and this is where we get that high-resolution image, and it tells us how much of each location within the genome is present in the embryo. And um, There's a lot of data analysis, uh, computational analysis with machine learning algorithms that, that then res you know, they give us a result that we interpret. And every step in this process, we have uh, witnessing to make sure that samples are moved in the right place uh, and and tr and traced um, back to the original sample. So that there's all of these steps in place. It's um, it's quite a process uh, to make sure that what we provide in the end is the highest quality and the highest accuracy we can provide uh, to the patient. The genomics labs are incredible spaces. So high tech and incredible you know i was watching yeah. some of your video on your on your site and the machinery and the technology is just gorgeous yeah and you know the the people in those labs are are as important right we we have um proficiency testing and competency testing and and the and the people on our staff have to appreciate what we're doing uh to a much greater degree than any uh, a, a typical you know laboratory or, or molecular biology laboratory this this uh process obviously is uh very important to get right and so you have to have the right people and i think it's important to have people involved even with with interacting with patients and and providers we, we have that personal uh touch as well you know i i echo that in our office and with our laboratory professionals, our embryologists and our andrologists, it's, they're so, they're so on spot. So in our, as we close, 
I was thinking about an eye to the future, simple question for you, since I have you and I'm not going to get you all the time. Um, what do you think is the next breakthrough in our field? Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's, I know it's not an easy one. I know, but just any, you know, yeah. anything you want to say and we're, we're fine. Well, you know, one of the things that I, I still find extremely fascinating and, and you learned about um, how the environment might impact things. And, and so I think one of the unexplored territories is epigenetics. And the cool thing about it is it's a genetic test for the environment, like, and it really hasn't been fully explored. And we know that in the early embryo, uh, reprogramming the, the epigenetic status, this is like where it all happens. And so we, we still have a lot to explore. Uh, and I think there, there are going to be some significant findings as we develop better methods to, to evaluate the epigenome, um, and particularly in the, in the human embryo. So how outside forces, besides what everyone thinks is affecting that embryo? Yeah, there may be um, biomarkers that help us. You know, we still, when you transfer a euploid embryo, it's 50, 60%. Um, when you have two euploid embryos, it's higher. And, but there's, there's some additional uh, room there, I think, to better identify embryos with reproductive potential and, and competence. And, and so epigenetics. Could there could be a clinical utility to it, but I think also just understanding the biology is is a fascinating thing. Be big. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, gets us all thinking for the future. I really want to thank you for sharing your time with us. Um, so thank you very much. Yeah. If you want to check out your website and all your work, check out genomic. You know, at genomic prediction, your website is www.lifeview.com. Correct on that, Nathan? Yeah. Lifeview.com. Yeah. yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Appreciate it. And um, just so our listeners know, on your web, there's incredible papers, videos, explanations, pamphlets. Check it out. And as always, you can follow me on Instagram at fertility.now and at Dr. Spencer Richland. And I want to thank you, Nathan, for being on. Thank you so much. Thank you.